0: morning. First thing is Monday morning, uh, ladies' prayer tomorrow morning uh, at 6 a.m. via Zoom. There's still ladies' prayer going on, so if you want to get involved, I know 6 a.m. is a little early for some of you, but you can do it. 6 a.m. for prayer before work. uh, Great way to start your day, ladies. So talk to Julie. uh, Phone call. Give Julie a phone call or a text or all the actually link for that Zoom is in your email too, so call the church if you need a uh, that email, and you want to get involved in that way. Tuesday morning, then we've got men's prayer support group here at 7 a.m. for an hour of prayer, uh, and then actually next week, ladies' Bible study starts up, girls of swords. So again, uh, look for that info in your email to come, or talk to Julie, or call the church, or reach out to someone, and we'll make sure you get the information needed. Um, and then the other thing is that week of prayer is going on all this week. Starts tonight. Uh, uh, tonight at 7 to 8.30. So look forward to that. Uh, and then there's just, um, there's actually one more thing we just need to address that's uh, just devastating. Um, I don't know what else to say, really. This past week, uh, like some of you may have known, uh hasn't been easy for us as a church church community. Um, our good friend Maureen Webster Uh, just had her life just tragically taken from her here on earth. Um, And it's just been a shock to us here at CTK. Um, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's just purely a tragedy. It's just purely uh, something we're all mourning here at CTK. Um, And so so we as a church body, we just want to support you. If you need... Anything through all this, uh, we here at CTK are here to help you with that. I'd encourage you to come to prayer tonight for support, 7 to 8.30. Tonight, we're going to have prayer. Um, If you need anything, tonight's the night. We can talk about things. We can just uh, spend some time in prayer together if you need. Uh, We're going to even talk about it later, anointing of oil. If you need uh, anointing of oil upon you, tonight is the night. Um, So come to prayer tonight. 7 to 8.30, there's no details on uh, any service for Marine or anything yet, but uh, we'll make sure when that information becomes available, we'll pass that on. Um, so we just want to remind you that uh, we're here for you. <laughs> it, it's, it, when we all first heard the news, it just was a shock to all of us. Um, but the thing that we can take hope in is that uh, Marine is with the Lord. We know that says to be apart from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And so we cling to that hope this week. We've, cling, we've been clinging to that hope. Um, as tragic as it is, uh, she's in heaven with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, and so with that, when we don't know what else to do, when we don't know what else to say, what do we do? Uh, we look to Jesus. So we're going to look to Jesus this morning. We're going we're to go to the written word that leads us to the living Word. We're going to look to the Lord for some wisdom this morning, some understanding, some just what's going on, Lord. It's just a crooked world we live in. So turn with me to the book of James. I'm going to open in prayer this morning. Lord, uh, we just cling to you today, Lord. We know that you are our Savior, Father. We know that you are our Lord and Savior, Father. We thank you this morning, Father, that you sent your Son. You sent your son to earth to die for us, Lord. Your son was hung on that cross. He willingly gave up his life and then three days later he was raised again and we just praise your name this morning, Father. We thank you for the hope that we cling to that you are a living and you are alive. That Jesus didn't just get hung on that cross and then never come back, Lord. He overcame the grave. His blood was shed so that my, my sins would be paid for, and we just praise your name for that this morning, Father. We thank you for this time this morning, God. Uh, we just pray that you'd uh, bless the next 40 minutes as we go through your word. In your name, amen. Amen. So, hey, turn with me to the book of James, the book of James chapter 5. And uh, this morning, we come to the final chapter of the letter from James. I'm, I'm wrapping up James this morning. Uh, It's been a little bit, we've been going through James, intermingled between Joshua and Judges that Matt's been going through, but now we come to the book of uh, James, James chapter 5. And so if you remember, James chapter 5, I'm just going to do a little highlight of what the past four chapters have been about. There's been a running theme through the book of James we've been looking at, and it's the characteristics of a mature Christian. And so in chapter 1, the mature Christian takes trials and turns them into triumphs. In chapter 2, the mature Christian has a living faith. Faith that's shown by his or her works. In chapter 3, the mature Christian understands the power of the tongue, and they derive their wisdom not from the world, but from the Lord above. And then in chapter 4, the mature Christian realizes who's in control, and that's God. And they have the proper response to that understanding. And now finally, in chapter 5, James is going to outline three main things for us that the mature Christian is. It's going to come up up on screen for you. The first thing that we're going to learn about today is that the mature Christian is prudent. The second thing is the mature Christian is patient. And the third thing that James is going to talk about is that the mature Christian is prayerful. And so let's look at verse 1, chapter 5. The start here of chapter 5 is actually a bit of a continuation from the end of chapter 4. Kind of chapter 4 rolls right into chapter 5. And At the end of chapter four, James just finished communicating the importance of understanding how frail your life is. Don't walk around here on earth boasting of your arrogance. And then in continuation of that idea, James hones in on the importance of being prudent, especially being prudent with your money. So let's read chapter five, uh, verse one to three of James. It says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Tough start, eh? Tough start from James. This is going to be a long morning, I have a feeling. Now before we go any further, let's just remind ourselves of a couple things. The first thing I want to remind us of is that it is not a sin to be rich. There are many wealthy people in the Bible that we can see. Like people have tons of wealth, like Abraham, uh, Job, King David, King Solomon, Barnabas, who was a friend of Paul and a, a missionary, or Lydia, who was a, a rich businesswoman, and she actually hosted many of the early church gatherings in her house. You see, it's not a sin to have money, but it is a sin if money has you. That's the first thing I want to remind us of. And the second thing I want to remind us of is that you are rich. (laughs) You know, you might not think you're rich. In fact, I'm willing to bet um, if we sent out a blind survey right now, we emailed you all a blind survey and and just asked the simple question, do you think you're rich? I think the overwhelming majority would say, no, I'm not rich. In fact, I will be honest, I would probably respond that way. I, I don't think I'm rich. But did you know that if you make $25,000 a year of income, Canadian, if you make $25,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of income earning globally. You make seven times the median income. Did you know that if you make $75,000 a year, 75, that barely enough to um, support a family, you are in the top 1% of the world. You are 25 times the median income in the world. Friends, you are rich. And as much as I wish James wasn't talking to me here, uh, you know, this is a wise warning here for me to be prudent with my money. So let's look again at verse one. It says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The rich are weeping and howling because miseries are coming upon them. Why? Well, look at verse two and three. It says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The rich are weeping and howling because their riches have rotted. Their garments have become moth-eaten. Their gold and silver has corroded. They've laid up treasure in the last days. Now please remember, please remember this as we go through this. By no means are we saying that the rich cannot be followers of Jesus. But I think we can understand the struggles of following Jesus that come with with being rich, being with having money. See, the focus from the end of chapter four was the importance of humbling yourself before God, and I think we can all agree that riches and power uh, can re- really make the ability to humble oneself before God all that much harder. I think of the man, the rich man in Matthew uh, 19, who. He came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I followed all the commandments. I honor my father and mother. I I do everything I can. I I love my neighbor as myself. What else do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus responded saying, sell all your stuff and come follow me. And what did the rich man do? He left away sad because he had a lot of money that he did not want to part with. 1 Timothy tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. See, when it comes to money, people will commit all kinds of sin to try and acquire it. We know that having money can be an obstacle. It can be a big obstacle for us to be used in the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus told us that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we to be like the rich man and sell everything we have and move to the Himalayas and just sing Kumbaya for the rest of our lives? Well, I don't think so. Settle down. You know, the Bible tells us if you're not willing to work, you don't get to eat. 1 Timothy says anyone who doesn't provide for his family or his relatives or his own household has denied his own faith. You see, money is a good and useful tool when used properly for the kingdom of God. So what should I be doing then? Should I be go the opposite way? Should I be weeping and howling? And you just said I'm rich. You just said, at the very least, you said I'm in the top 10% of wealth in the world. Like, what should I be doing? Should I be weeping and howling like James tells us to do? Well, remember how I said chapter four rolls into chapter five. Let's look quickly. uh, If you got your Bibles out, which I hope you do, just because you're at home doesn't mean you don't have to have your Bibles out, because this isn't going to come up on screen. Chapter four, verse 16 Look at chapter 4, verse 16. It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And now look at chapter 5, verse 3 again with me. It says, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And now you underline this next part if you don't have it underlined. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Your arrogance and love for money has caused you to lay up treasure in the last days. Friends, are you laying up treasure in the last days? You know, I read an article the other day. uh, Have you ever heard of a prepper? Do you know what a prepper is? A prepper is uh, someone who's like preparing for massive civil unrest or, or the end of the world and they're kind of acquiring stuff and things and setting up underground bunkers and just getting ready for you know, acquiring weaponry and, and setting up a plan so that when the end of the world happens, they are prepared. They're prepped. They have their full bug out kit. They know what they're doing uh, when the bad guys come and get them. They just acquire things and they have stockpiles of stuff so that when the world explodes, they'll be ready to survive. And so this article I read says this, since COVID has become a thing, People identifying as preppers, it's a silly word to even say, people identifying as preppers have tripled from 3 million to 12 million people in the United States alone. The article also said an underground shelter company, uh, I forget the name of it, but uh, you can find the article online. An underground shelter company, which, which sells underground shelters, builds underground bunkers for people, has reported that their sales have increased 500% since the beginning of 2019, compared to 2019. Sales have jumped 500% compared to 2019. Now it's good to be prepared. Don't get me wrong. It is very good to be prepared. It's good to have your lamp trimmed with oil. But the key is, do you have your lamp filled with the oil in the treasures of the world? Or do you have your lamp filled with the oil of Jesus Christ? Friends, Jesus is coming again soon. Don't lay up treasure in the last days. One of my favorite things to say that I often say is, Ah, it's all going to burn. It's just all going to burn. All these things and stuff, we, it's all going to burn. Friends, Jesus is coming again soon. Don't get caught looking to secure and fortify yourself on this earth, thinking it will protect you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moths and vermins destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in earth, treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I like what the old minister Matthew Poole said, uh, it's gonna come up on screen, about who James is talking to here in chapter five. At the beginning of chapter 5, he says, He speaks to them not simply as rich, for riches and grace sometimes may go together, but as wicked, not only wallowing in wealth, but abusing it to pride, luxury, oppression, and cruelty. Friends, Jesus is coming soon. The mature Christian is prudent with their money. The definition of prudent is prudent is acting with or showing care and thought for the future. The mature Christian is wise with their money and handles it in a proper view of what is to come. Riches will rot, garments will be moth-eaten, gold and silver will corrode. So what will happen if you don't live your life with the coming expectation of Jesus? What will happen? Look what James says in verse 4 to 6. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Verse 6, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. There's a judgment coming. See that in there? There is a judgment coming. In verse 4, there's another great name for God the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. It's an army term. It doesn't mean that he's a dinner host. It's not what it's referring to, that he's going to be a nice, proper dinner host. It means he's the Lord of an army. And our army commander of a heavenly host hears the injustice going on. Friends, being rich is not a sin. But using your riches to live in self-indulgence, to withhold wages from those who deserve it, to fatten yourself while condemning the righteous, to lay up for yourself treasures on earth, and to be arrogant in the face of God, that is sin. The Lord of hosts hears it, he sees it, and though it seems good for you now here on earth, there's a day coming when his people will be redeemed. The mature Christian is prudent with their money. Now, James keeps going in verse 7, and he takes a bit of a shift. He now goes the opposite end. He goes, you know, well, what are we to do if we're experiencing this injustice from the rich? You know, maybe you don't have the same power or the same money as some other people, and maybe you're being treated unfairly. But what are you going to do in the light of the knowledge that the Lord of hosts is coming soon? And this brings us to the second quality of a mature Christian, that James tells us in chapter 5 and that is the mature Christian is patient in suffering. Look at verse 7. The beginning of verse 7 says, "Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord." Wait, 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 wait. What? Be patient in suffering? You mean I'm not supposed to grab my trident and my grenade and go attack the 1%? Ah, per- oh, attack the 1%? No. James says be patient. And wait like the farmer waits. Let's keep going in verse 7 to 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it? Until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James gives us the workings of a farmer as an example to be patient. You know, the farmer doesn't plant his seeds of corn and then go to sleep that night and wake up the next day and be like, "What? where's where's all my corn? What? What do you mean there's no corn up already? He's not all bewildered and confused why the corn doesn't come up the next day. It takes time for the seed to grow. But in contrast to that, the farmer doesn't just plant the seed, plant the seed and then go into hibernation for three months. He puts in the work. He weeds, he waters, he fertilizes. You know, maybe he gives each, each little plant a nice little kiss. I heard if you play classical music to plants, it'll make him grow better. Maybe he's outside with his cello playing a nice song. I don't know what he's doing, but he's putting in the work. The farmer puts in the work needed, and then he waits with an expectant heart, knowing what is to come. But the waiting isn't easy. It's not easy, is it? There's things that get in the way. There's bad weather. Uh, There's bugs that try and destroy the crops. There's birds coming in trying to eat the seed. There's machinery breakdown. There are things that happen in the waiting that are unforeseen circumstances, but the farmer knows. The farmer knows the payoff that is to come. So he turns those trials into triumphs and he waits patiently for the harvest to come. And he looks at the signs that show him when the harvest is getting close. He watches the early rains, and he watches the late rains, and he keeps an eye out for the corn to get big and start growing and get to a certain height and size, and he knows the time is close. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. It says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Establish your hearts because the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another because the judge is standing at the door. Friends, there's a great harvest about to come. The late rains have come and the coming of the Lord is at hand. I'm here telling you that right now. The coming of the Lord is at hand. After this message, actually, I'd encourage you, go to our sister church, uh, Mountain Springs Calvary Chapel in Calgary, where Pastor Joel, uh, this morning, he's doing a, preaching a two-part sermon message on a, a prophecy update for 2020. The late rains are here, friends. This is good news. So be patient. Be eagerly expecting the harvest to come. And so what does this look like? What does it look like when the mature Christian is patient in suffering? What does it look like when the mature Christian is eagerly anticipating and looking forward to the return of the Lord? Well, James gives us a couple of examples. Let's look at James uh, chapter 5, verse 10, 10 and 11. It says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James gives us two examples of people, of, uh, people being steadfast, the f- people being patient. The first is the prophets. And now whenever I think of prophets, um, actually I only ever, this is just me, I only ever really remember the good things that they've done, the good things about them, the amazing things they do in the Bible. Um, I often forget about the hardships about them. I, I think, of, think of Jeremiah. Great prophet in the Old Testament. Did you know that he was put into the stocks? He was thrown into prison. He preached the name of Yahweh for 40 years and no one listened. Yet he was persistent and patient in his trials. Or think of Daniel. All the events in the book of Daniel, do you know that they didn't happen in a three-day period? The whole being shipped off to Babylon debacle, the whole... Daniel in the lion's den debacle. That didn't happen over a period of three days. That happened over a period of about 75 years. Daniel served under six different kings, yet he was patient and God-serving during his suffering. The next example James gives us is Job. Did you know that here's a uh, dinner party quiz uh, for you for next time we have dinner parties again, whenever that is. A little trivia question you can bring up. This is the only place in the New Testament where Job is mentioned. And James reminds us of Job as an example of patience and suffering here. We all know the story of Job. He was an innocent man. Um, the Lord allowed the Satan to, to strip Job down to nothing. He took his family, only his wife was left. Uh, he lost all his riches. He had boils and sickness all over him so bad, all he could do was sit there and lament. His friends came and and talked down to him and told him how he was a sinner when at the end of the day, Job did nothing wrong. Though Job wavered a little bit, he gave praise to the Lord at the end of the day and he endured and in turn, the Lord showed him how compassionate and merciful he truly is. Look at this quote from Spurgeon about Job. It says, and when we come to look all Job's life through, we see that the Lord in mercy brought him out of it all with unspeakable advantage. He who tested with one hand supported with the other. Whatever Satan's end might be in tempting the patriarch, God had an end which covered and compassed that of the destroyer. And that end was answered all along the line from the first loss which happened among the oxen to the last taunt of his three accusers. And so finally, uh, in the second thing that a a Christian, mature Christian does, being patient, James ends with an exhortation to you mature Christians out there who are enduring suffering and patience. Verse 12 says, But above all my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You know, back in the day, there used to be two ways of making an oath, and there still is kind of one way, two ways nowadays of making an oath. The first way that they would make an oath is they would say they'd do it, but that didn't actually mean they'd do it. That's kind of like us saying it with our fingers crossed behind our back. And then the other way of saying you do something is saying you do it and you'd swear by God or by heaven or by the temple. And that meant you actually would do it. So you'd say you do it, but that didn't mean you'd do it. But if you say you do it and swear by God or heaven or the temple, then that means you would do it. Pretty simple, right? Makes perfect sense. Not so much. In Matthew 23, Matthew talks about those who swear by the temple versus those who swear by the gold on the temple and how just absolutely ridiculous it is. Just makes no sense. And so here, James just exhorts those, uh, being patient in suffering, just saying, he's, James is just saying, just be honest. Just be trustworthy. You don't need to differentiate what you swear on and make people try and guess if you're gonna actually do it or not. If you say yes, mean yes. If you say no, mean no. Be patient Understand the judge is standing at the door, so let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. And so finally, in, in verse 13, James brings us to the third thing that he calls you to do as a mature Christian. Let's just review. The first thing he calls you to do as a mature Christian is to be prudent with money. The second thing he calls you to do is to be patient, and the third thing he calls you to do is to be prayerful. Let's look at verse 13. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You know, I was going to call this third thing here, um, I was going to call what a, a mature Christian does is be prayerful in troubles. But the reality is the mature Christian is prayerful at all times. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Praise. In all things we should pray and praise. We should take everything to the Lord. Prayer and praise are important, non-negotiable things in the life of a Christian. Prayer and praise are an essential service in the life of a mature Christian. What an amazing thing prayer is, friends. Just stop and think about what prayer is for a second. Like, it, it like blows my puny brain to think that we have an ability to say words, and we're talk with the creator of heaven and earth. It just doesn't make any... Even more than that, we don't even have to speak words of our mouth, and the, we know the Lord is listening to us. What a just amazing thing. It, it, like, I can't even properly put into words the idea of prayer and how just wild of an idea it is that we can talk to the living God. We can just speak words and he hears us. Like... It's just a wild thing. It my, my brain just had a minor, mini, about two-minute explosion as I was prepping for this. Like, just sit and think about what prayer is. Just the basics of I am opening my mouth and the Lord is hearing me. Okay, sure. <laughs> just wild. And so, in the next six verses, James touches on three specific situations. Three specific situations of prayer to look for and to be praying for. And so, the first thing. Uh, to be prayerful in is sickness. So let's look at verse uh, 14, 14 and 15. It says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Call for the elders of of the church and let them pray over you anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what do we mean by that, anointing with oil? Well, there's two um, interpretations of that idea specifically to this uh, chapter five of James that commentators think are, some commentators think this, some commentators think that. And actually, I think both are right. So the first idea that they think James is talking about is that in those days, uh, oil had a medicinal physical medicinal healing properties, and doctors of that day would use it, rub it on people's sickness or wounds, and it would help with medical issues. So the argument here is that James is telling people to get the best medical treatment for their sickness, and I would agree. If you have a sickness or an illness, I hope you get the best medical doctor treatment you can. I would never tell someone not to go to the doctor when they're sick, to not seek out the best care uh, for their illness that they can. But the second, um, second thing that, that we think they're talking about, the second in- interpretation that James is talking about here, is the anointing of oil that many people practice. And actually, we here at CTK practice this uh, idea of anointing oil. And that's the idea of, of literally dabbing some oil on a person's head and having the elders of the church pray over them. Now, if you go to Israel, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you'll go to all these kind of little touristy spots and whatever, and you'll just see walls and walls and walls of different types of oil, different names and different spices in them. And so what's the best type of oil? Is it the Lion of Judah oil with pure virgin olive oil? Or is it this other one that's the Temple Mount barrel age select, aged for 10 years with Dabs of, of the water from the Jordan in it. Well, I, and I'm not even joking. They have that, they have like hundreds of thousands of different types of oil that you can pick, anointing oil. But the thing is, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The point of the oil is a customary emblem demonstrating the need for the Holy Spirit to come upon the person and bring the power of the Lord Jesus to help this person in their sickness. In the Old Testament, oil was a symbol representing the Holy Spirit. And so by dabbing a bit of oil on the person, it's a way of inviting the Holy Spirit to fill the person, overflow the person in the situation that they need help in. Is it strictly physical ailments? Not at all. Friends, I'd encourage you, if you have a serious need or ailment that you need uh, support in, you need the help of the Holy Spirit in, it's simply, it it's seems a little weird. Don't get me wrong. When you first read this, it seems weird. Like I'm gonna have a dab of oil on me and the elders will pray for me. But it's simply an act of obedience from the scriptures. It's simply an act of, in the same way you get baptized as a symbol of following Jesus, getting anointed with oil is a way of saying, Holy Spirit, I need you to intercede in this. Help me, help me, Holy Spirit. I need you to overflow me here. And so, what will happen when we invite the Holy Spirit to intercede and when you call on the elders to pray over you? Verse 15 says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, does that mean that you'll be physically healed? Well, not necessarily. I think we all know people. In fact, I know myself have prayed for people with sickness with cancer, with some other form of ailment, some other disease, and we pray that they'd be healed. And what happens? They're not. So does that mean this text lying to us? Does that mean the Bible's lying to us? Not at all. Not at all, friends. What this sentence seems to have a broader understanding of what the Lord will do in regards to eternal life. Yes, 100%. God has the power to heal physical sickness. And God does heal physical sickness, but that doesn't mean that he will always heal physical sickness. However, to think that we should then just not pray for physical healing is also wrong. It's also a mistake. Many people are not healed because there is no prayer of faith made. Our job is to pray in humble confidence for healing and then trust that the Lord has it under control. And so the second situation that James highlights for us Uh, to be in prayer, is for each other. James 5.16, let's read James 5.16. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know, one of the most underused, neglected principles amongst uh, modern-day Protestant Christians is the importance of confession. Confession of sin is gross, It's uncomfortable. It's just something that those Catholics do. That's not something for us. You know, it's opening the dark corners that you try and hide. But James tells us, confession of sins is an important precursor to prayer. It is a crucial preeminent part of prayer. Did you know, now I haven't done all this research myself, but from what I've read and from what I understand from what a lot smarter guys than I have read, As you look back in church history of great revivals over the years, there are key aspects, key aspects that always come before great church revivals in history. And do you know what one of them is? Confession and prayer. During times of revival, there is always a conviction of the Holy Spirit which leads to confession and then subsequent corporate prayer for each other with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the devil wants nothing more then for you to be isolated in your sin, have you hidden in the shadows, cut off from your fellow believers, sin in the camp can be detrimental to the body. I'm reminded of Achan. Do you guys remember Achan in the book of Joshua? Uh, Achan was a was a guy in in the army of Israel and, and they defeated their enemy and the Lord told the army of Israel, take nothing from these people. And what did Achan do? He took something and he hid it. And subsequently, the Lord told the army and told the people of Israel he wanted nothing to do with them until that secret sin was revealed. Secret sin in the camp can destroy. Friends, unconfessed sin needs to have light shed upon it so that it can be prayed for and so that you can be healed. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we all line up here? We're taking people walk in one by one. We'll get up on screen in front of this camera And we'll confess our sins to the whole world and so that's recorded uh, for the next 200 years so that your grandchildren can see all the sin you have in your life? No, not at all. Not at all. Confession of sin needs to be done with wisdom and in the right context with trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. I heard a story uh, the other day of three men. Three men um, gathered together and, and wanted to just confess sins to each other. And pray for each other. And so the first man says, you know, I, I have big troubles with lust. Will you guys please pray for me? And so they do. And the second guy says, hey, I got big, big troubles with lying. I, I'm a, I've got a lot of sin involving lying in my life, and I, I just need to confess that, and I need to pray. And the third guy said, guys, I got a lot of troubles with gossip, and I got to go. <laughs> Friends, be wise about confession. Be smart in who you confess things to. But if there's something that you need to confess, ensure that it comes out so that you can be healed. And look at what happens when we come together as believers confessing and praying for each other. Verse 17 and 18 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The prayer of a righteous man with fervency can work with God and do amazing things. To be fervent, to pray with passionate intensity. I always joke, and it's not that much of a joke. It's actually a hard-hitting realization. That my pre-dinner prayers always just go something like this. Lord, thank you for this food. Blessed to our bodies. Amen. That is not praying with fervency. (laughs) Does a fervent prayer need to be long-winded and take a half an hour? By no means. But fervency in your prayer understands truly this amazing gift that we have and the power of prayer and and the amazing gift it is. And fervency in prayer is to understand that and to pray like you mean it. Look at Elijah, a man like you and I. And yet he prayed for rain. He prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. And then he prayed for rain and it did rain. Friends, don't let your sin rot and become putrid and just have a nasty stench in silence. Confess your sins to one another and then pray with fervency and you will be healed. Revival begins with confession and with prayer. Did you know that we had a, recently had a run of 40 out of 45 days as a church body, meeting in corporate prayer? And friends, we want to see revival, do we not? And that starts tonight as we start our week of prayer. The late rains have come, friends. The late rains are here. Jesus is coming soon. The harvest is plentiful. Elijah, a man with a nature like yours and mine, prayed and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Confession and prayer. Let's look at the third and final situation that James highlights in prayer. The first is praying in sickness, the second is praying for each other, and the third is pray for the wandering. Verse 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The mature Christian will pray for those wandering from their faith and will allow themselves to be used as instruments of God's will. You see, we so often have a desire in our ministry, and I'm guilty of this too, 100%. We have a desire to um, save the most lost, to save the drug addicted, to save the prostitutes, to save those that just would be a miracle of miracles if they ever got saved. But friends, if you save one wandering soul who's slightly off the path, you will save his soul from death. Are we to pray for the drug addicted and those so seemingly lost that we don't think they'll ever come to the Lord? 100%. And we're to actively try and save their soul. But don't forget those who haven't been at church for a month or two. Don't forget those who you haven't seen around for a few months, who haven't come to prayer meetings as often anymore. Don't forget those that have just begun wandering. Pray for the sick, pray for each other, and pray for the wandering. At all times, be in prayer. And just like that, James is done. And you know, this is a bit of an abrupt ending to James's letter, I think. Like, there's no benediction. Often we have a final greeting in the other books, like from Paul and stuff. There's, there's just nothing. It just finishes just like that. But I I think this is actually, the end of this letter just perfectly sums up what James has been trying to say this uh, this whole letter that he's been sending here. This letter, the book of James, the letter from James is for the Christian. It's for the lukewarm Christian who's been stagnant, the Christian whose faith has hit a plateau, the Christian whose faith has become a dead faith rather than a living faith. Church, we wanna be a people of living faith We want to be a people who understand how close the Lord is to coming again soon, and we want to act in the appropriate manner. We want to take our trials and turn them into triumphs. We want to control our tongue and take our wisdom from above. We want to be a people who are prudent, who are patient, and who are prayerful. Friends, the late rains have come. Let me encourage you. The late rains have come. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray for the laborers. Jesus is coming again soon, friends. I say that with a smile on my face because this is exciting news. Jesus is coming again soon. So let's be spiritually mature and let's be ready for him. I just wanna leave you with these three questions uh, before Ken comes up to lead us in one more song at the end. Three application questions for you just to think about this week. The first question, Do you have money or does your money have you? And now what does that mean? I would ask a sub-question to that. How much do you tithe every week, every two weeks? How much do you give? Do you have your money or does your money have you? The second question for you to think about, what does it mean to establish your hearts like it was said in verse eight? What does it mean to establish your hearts like was said in verse eight? And what's one thing that you could do this week to establish your heart? And then the third and final question is, do you have any unconfessed sin? And this is a big one, and this is a gross one. But do you have any unconfessed sin? And be honest with yourself. And I wanna encourage you, before Saturday, before next week, one week from today, share your sin with a trusted brother or sister in Christ.